0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We recently released bonus episodes on The Batman and Turning Red, and we have one in the works on the new Hulu limited series, The Dropout. Patrons also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. But Even if you aren't ready to subscribe, you can still follow the Patreon for your Next Picture Show bonus mini-recommendations and Feedback Friday posts, where we respond to your thoughts and questions. Those posts are open to the public, and we hope you'll come engage and ask some questions. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's
1: very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present believe that
2: someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a
3: living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
0: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we've podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky will not be joining us for this blood-soaked horror double feature for reasons that have been explained in previous episodes. Instead, we'll be joined by the less horror-averse film critic Katie Reif, late of the AB Club and currently contributing to such publications as Polygon, Rolling Stone, Vulture, RogerEbert.com, and other fine places. Katie, thanks for joining us.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, less horror reverse is maybe a little bit
0: of an understatement. <laughs> Tasha, can you tell us about our next two
4: episodes? Sure. Uh, for this pairing, we're traveling to Texas twice, but we're not going to the nice parts of Texas. This isn't the Texas of, say, Dazed and Confused. It's not even the Texas of The Last Picture Show. It's a place of dilapidated farmhouses, killer alligators and questionable meat products. First, we'll be taking a look at The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 1974 debut of director Toby Hooper, in which a bunch of van-driving youths meet a family that hasn't been the same since the local slaughterhouse stopped killing its cows with hammer blows to the head. While Hooper's film inspired a bunch of sequels and remakes, including one just this year, we're pairing it with a kind of spiritual companion piece. Set in 1979, Ty West's new film X similarly follows a bunch of ill-fated van passengers, this time the crew of a low-budget porn movie who've rented a small house on a farm to shoot a feature called The Farmer's Daughters. Only they haven't told the owner of the farm what they're up to. And even if they had, they'd still have to reckon with some uh, (laughs) unusual impulses that he shares with his wife.
0: We hope you'll put down your power tools for a bit and take this journey with us.
1: What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. Sally, I hear something. Stop! Stop! This is the movie
0: The Texas Chainsaw Massacre sets up the tension that will drive it in its opening moments. The introductory voiceover, provided by future Night Court star John La Roquette alerts viewers that they are about to see a true story drawn from, quote, one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. Then, after a screen establishing the date, August 18th, 1973, we see grisly, almost subliminal flashes of what appear to be photos from a crime scene before the camera finally settles, lingering on the image of a skull as it pulls out to reveal a kind of sculpture made from a corpse perched atop a grave. It's horrible, but the way Hooper frames it against the sunrise, it's also kind of beautiful, a work of art made of rotting flesh. The contrast between the documentary setup and the craft, care, and artfulness of the execution encapsulates the film. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre depicts slayings and sadism with shocking immediacy. In Subject and in its focus on the killers who take glee in hurting women, it's not that different from countless low-budget grindhouse shockers released around the same time. But in Execution, it's stunningly different. A chase through the night between the chainsaw-wielding killer known as Weatherface, played by Gunnar Hansen, and the determined-to-survive Sally Hardesty, played by Marilyn Burns, is horrifying, But it's also beautifully timed and masterfully edited, and the longer it goes on, the more it starts to feel like it's about more than just a mass killer chasing his screaming prey. So, for that matter, does the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, although in ways that are hard to pin down. Sally's not alone when the film begins. She's traveling to her grandfather's grave with her paraplegic brother, Franklin, and some friends, drawn by reports of grave robbing. It's the aftermath of that crime we see at the beginning of the film. But really, they seem to be just kind of driving around a bit aimlessly, a bunch of shaggy youth drifting through a crumbling land where the locals have had little to do but hang around graveyards and drink, the meat processing plants don't offer the guaranteed employment they used to, and if anyone's farming the earth, they're not having much luck. It's the early 70s and everyone seems to have kind of lost their way. The travelers do find a kind of functional family unit, however, or at least a parody of one in which everyone has a part to play, but only Sally survives long enough to witness it in full her friends having been picked off one by one before she joins the dinner party that provides the film with its seemingly endless climax, one in which she's subjected to mockery, humiliation, and physical torture. But then somehow Sally escapes in an exhilarating and terrifying rush to freedom that gives the film its famous ending. But though Sally gets away, the film ends with the pervading sense that what we've seen, a corrupted, dangerous, rotting version of America, won't disappear no matter how far she gets.
1: Grave robbing in Texas is this hour's top news story. An informant led officers of the Muerto County Sheriff's Department to a cemetery just outside the small rural Texas community of Newt early this morning. Officers there discovered what appeared to be a grisly work of art, the remains of a badly decomposed body wired to a large monument. A second body was found in a ditch near the perimeter of the cemetery. Subsequent investigation has revealed at least a dozen empty crypts, and it's feared more will turn up as the probe continues. Deputies report that in some instances, only parts of a corpse had been removed. The head, or in some cases, the extremities removed, the remainder of the corpse left intact. Evidence indicates the robberies have occurred over a period of time. Sheriff, Jesus Maldonado, refused to give details in the ghoulish case, and said only that he did have strong evidence linking the crime to elements outside the state. Area residents have reportedly converged on the cemetery, fearing the remains of relatives have been removed. No suspects are in custody as the investigation at the scene continues.
0: So let's talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's a lot to unpack here. I kind of want to start with why we're talking about it in the first place. You know, it's got that unforgettable title. I'm sure that helped to attract attention at the time but also in more critical praise and, you know, a larger box office than the average horror movie, uh, particularly low budget movies filmed in Texas. What made this film stand out in 1974?
3: Well, I mean, this was, uh, this was after The Exorcist came out and after Night of the Living Dead. So you were already well within, you know, the sort of 70s new wave of horror where they moved, you know, the, the terror from moldy old castles in England, you know, like you would see in Hammer movies, to modern day America. You know, and Romero, uh, Romero's films famously have lots and lots of political subtext to them. And so does the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think part of what made this movie so notorious was that was like the release patterns of the time and the distribution, because this one got a slow rollout at drive ins. And so this is a movie that you could have heard about six months or a year before you saw it.
0: And then it rolls into town and you have to see what all the fuss is about, too. I think I think we lost a little something when that when that went away. When, it was the memoria it of its day. <laughs> it was the horror uh, of its day.
4: There's also just the sheer brutality of it. I mean, I, as I recall, it was it was advertised with the the log line, "Who will survive and what will be left of them?" And the idea was just. Seeing Psycho and seeing blood on the screen in a way people hadn't really seen it before and imagining the knife going into the body like provoked a sensation, but the idea of a chainsaw being used to dismember somebody just seems like the kind of thing that nobody wants to see on screen so everybody wants to go see it on screen you know there's a a novelty there that's also just the kind of of horror that sits in the back of your head well what does that look like what would that be like and I think that there's just a luridness to the the fundamental premise here that drew people and then when they once they got in the door they spread the word of mouth just because this movie is so surprisingly brutal and so abrupt in its violence and and So startling in some of the details. It's there's a lot here that just lingers with you and gets under your skin.
3: It's so interesting the way you're describing it, Tasha, because the way I always talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that it's not as bloody as people think it is. It's not, there's not that much blood in the movie. You know, you have this horrific imagery, but that's not, you know, bring it back to Night of the Living Dead again they were using scraps from a butcher shop and they do do use them in this movie too, but in a separate context, like the famous scene where, uh, one of the, I forget her name, but the first gal who gets taken in by Leatherface when she's hanging on the hook, you know, when you watch the sequels and the remakes and everything, they put a lot of blood in there, but there's no blood. There's just like the twitching and everything. And so I think that this movie, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but the way it was made was so down and dirty that I think some of that kind of transferred to the screen. Like it was hot. It smelled bad. They Mm. were using, the set was decorated with chicken bones. Everybody was high. Like they were using real chainsaws. Uh, They were shooting for 18, 20 hours at a stretch. Like it was a legitimately stinky, dangerous environment. And I think some of that Comes through on the screen and makes you think you're watching something gorier than you actually are, although you know you could draw a line between gore and brutality
4: well that's that's just it i like I want to be very specific here i didn't say it was gory, and I didn't say it was bloody. I said it was brutal. that first killing is so 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 abrupt, and I would say so brutal so just, you know, a hammer hitting bone and noise uh, in in a way that just cuts directly to your spine. The fact that you don't really see uh, what happens to Franklin and have to imagine it doesn't in any way detract from the, the immense brutality of that scene.
0: The, the first killing is a real shocker, too, because it, it, it strikes you as like, oh, wait, this is how someone would really die. If they encountered a mass killer, it wouldn't be this, you know, we certainly get long, drawn out, elaborately staged or at least, you know, highly detailed scenes later. But this is just you run into a big, scary person. And, you know, that's kind of it because you don't really have there's can't really put a bunch of a fight against someone like Leatherface. It is. I think it kind of throws you off your balance, because even if you're expecting a kind of grimy horror film, you're not expecting that.
2: Yeah, and the shock of that metal, the metal door opening. I mean, the, mm-hmm. sound work and the sound work of the film is incredible. As far as the tactility of the film, which is a huge part of what makes it so effective. I mean, there's no space more lived in <laughs> than that farmhouse. <laughs> that's a very lived in place. The other thing I would say, I mean, what was the, the tagline, uh, Tasha? Something about uh, who, will, who survive will survive and, and, what, and what will well, be left of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to talk, that's the tagline for the Vietnam War as well right Oof. if you want if you want to talk about this film as kind of a, a metaphor or sort of at least a, a evocation of, of of that event um it's it's hard to know where to start for me for how brilliant this movie is because it, it the style of it is so sophisticated you know in ways that i you know that, that belie the title i mean i think you do you expect a uh, brutal gore fest and you and the film kind of does deliver that to some degree but there's a level of sophistication in the the camera work and the sound and the performances like there's you know the the attention to the way the story is kind of laid out i mean just even like the big even before you get to that first killing which is a good what what, maybe 25 minutes into the movie
0: just it's not a long movie either
2: it's not that long right so so you're but you're building up a lot of you're getting so much information um, that you described a li- little bit in your keynote, Keith, about what the locals are up to and you get all those interesting radio broadcasts and sort of disturbing things that are being piped through there, you know, uh, you know, all the stuff at the, uh, at the, at the graveyard is just so, so interesting. I mean, there's a, there, there's all of that. And then there's just a lot of memorable camera movements and shots and angles. And like, it's just, it, the, the film has just been so thoroughly thought through but, and yet all this at the same time uh, feels kind of revolutionary i mean if you really think about like i mean it's a horror film that's about real horror real brutality you know not 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 as there's not a really a real escapist quality to it i mean it is it it, it feels like people it, what it feels like for people to be in actual danger that part of it is evoked in a very plain way a very um you know straightforward way that's that's you know immensely disturbing this is uh it's a great film with with many layers to it
3: I think one of the things about it, you know, why, what made it stand out is that it, in a lot of ways it captured the zeitgeist of the time, you know, it's uh, you know, uh, the Manson murders ended the sixties. Then at the beginning of the film, they're reading their horoscopes. And there's a lot of, there's th- this sense, you know, when the sixties turned into the seventies, that the party was over and the bad times were here. And I think that, particular ambiance really hangs very heavy over this movie and there's the uh, the true crime element as well you know manson is very tangential to this story just in the sense of like the, the the flower child dream going wrong but uh you know the story of Ed Gein, which psycho was also based on there's elements of that in this film too and i think that that also adds to the feeling that uh like you were saying scott we're watching something real
4: That beginning uh, crawl slash narration about how this is a real story, I can't help but wonder if that also didn't play into the mystique of the movie in very much the same way that the mystique around uh, the Blair Witch Project kind of came from people having been told, like, this is real found footage, this really happened. And people had a a sort of understanding that you can't trust when cinema says that. And that they maybe shouldn't buy into it, but they still did. You know, there there was still a lot of belief in that urban legend. You know, questions around like, wait, is this really real? And I think in the same sort of way, just the the gravity with which this movie is presented as a true story, even though it it draws very slightly from from Ed Gein's crimes, but has really, honestly, very little to do with him. I feel like maybe added kind of a a layer to the whole thing of oh wow yeah there are there are things like this out in the world that we have to think about and contend with
3: I read Gunnar Hansen's autobiography. He was a great writer. It's very eloquently written. But in, in the book, he talks about a common experience for him was going to a horror convention and meeting somebody. And they say, oh, my cousin's from the town where the murders really happened. And he'd say, there were no-.
1: and,
3: and, and he'd say it, they didn't happen. And then people would look at him and be like, yes, they did. Or you know, they'd make reference to like, oh, yeah, the real Sawyers were my third cousins. And he'd say, there were no real Sawyers. And people would say, yes, there were.
4: In so many cases, I would think that was a Mandela effect of people just kind of like imagining that something they saw in media was real. But in this case, I think it's just it's far more likely that. That kind of, of crazy, like that kind of violence happens all the time in little pockets and corners of America and in the world. And it is very likely that it, that person's third cousins were a bunch of like inbred weirdos who killed somebody. I would not be surprised that that was true at all. You, know, when, when people say like, oh, yeah, that, you know, the legend of the, the couple who were making out and, uh, the, the guy with a hook for a hand came for them, like that totally happened to my niece's boyfriend's cousin. Hairdresser. Like, you know, that an awful lot of that is just sort of how people receive urban legends with this understanding that it, yeah, it happened to somebody. can't quite put my finger on it. But in this case, I would really believe that a lot of the people saying that to him really did know about like some grisly murder that happened in their tiny small town
0: at some point. Well, Rex uh, Reed uh, believed it. He he, he yeah. loved the movie. <laughs> But he also mentioned how it makes it even scarier, as it totally happened up in Wisconsin, where some some lunatic was taking out a bunch of tourists. So <laughs> you kind of, kind of got kind of got it right, but not really. Um,
2: I, I would say though, too, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and with certainly with Blair Witch, is that one of the deceptions of of cinema is that truth is associated with a certain look you know a certain documentary style to my eyes texas chainsaw massacre is extremely stylized in scenes in a way that blair Witch is of course you know very much you know mimicking or even performing you know people carrying camcorders around uh but i think that if once you kind of associate if something looks true if it evokes reality in a in, in a way that you're not used to as a viewer, it's definitely a way you're not used to as a viewer in a documentary style, then everything seems realer to you, which of course is the, a trick that, that uh, Hoopers is just, uh, very much going for here. If we had this podcast in 1999, we would certainly pair the Blair Witch Project with uh, the Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre because uh, the comparisons do not do not end there.
0: It helps, I think, that the ro- locations do look like some horrible thing you stumbled across. I think that allows you know Hooper to shoot it in a in a way that it is much more stylized without losing that kind of verite feel, I even mean, though it's not shot very verite. I, I love which are not to get ahead of ourselves, but Mimicton Mim- Mim- X, but I I love those like low shots, like grass level shots following people up to the house it's it's so eerie for reasons that it's kind of hard to put your finger on. I mean I find for beyond the obvious is spooky unsettling gory upsetting qualities movie I have a hard time pinning it down because it is political but in a way that's sort of like not explicit it's more like the mood of the times like this sort of unsettled america mm-hmm. vietnam's ever get mentioned never gets mentioned but you kind of a shadow still hanging over the whole thing anyway in ways that are just kind of you know if you know the era you you know this it, it's 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 an interesting movie maybe we should dig into the politics a little bit of it i mean it is where do you find the politics of this film what, what do they look like to you
4: Well, there's definitely a gentle touch on the idea of uh, the economic downturn is to some degree what caused all of this. The focus on the slaughterhouse, like... It's not heavily underlined um, the way it is in, in some movies. Hell or high water comes to mind, you know, where they're they're consistently emphasizing uh, that farms yes. farms are going under and banks are at fault and farmers have no way to get by except, you know, exciting, exciting bank heists. It's not nearly as heavily underlined here, but there is definitely a sense throughout we're in a recession and crazy people used to be able to get work and now they can't like there's not really much for a family with this little going for them to do, except turn to cannibalism to, to put meat on the table. And it like just the craziness f- wasn't
0: that bad when they had, but now they have too much time <laughs> on their hands and it's just gotten worse, you know? <laughs> well,
4: they, they have time on their hands if you want to get, if you want to get like real politically symbolic about it, like you could look at the, the various regimes that America and, and the CIA have trained and given weapons that have then turned against us in various ways. And look at the fact that uh, this, this family apparently worked at the slaughterhouse and learned how to kill uh, things by hitting them over the head with hammers and learned to like it as well. And, and that's where we came from. I have no idea if anything like that was going through Toby, Toby Cooper's mind. Uh, I don't I don't want to claim that's the real message here. But there is just sort of I, I mean, I think that movies about people in poverty that turn to horrific acts are always kind of movies considering poverty and considering what poverty does to people and the, the avenues that it cuts off particularly in terms of, uh, you know, things like education, jobs and, and any kind of, uh, financial or economic or social support like these are clearly people that don't have any of the above is that why they're cannibals i, I don't know about that yeah. these, these people might have been cannibals if they were living on park avenue
2: that's a long trajectory from being employable at a slaughterhouse to ending <laughs> up like any like grandpa and this thing i don't know i don't we know don't, I, we don't know very much about what grandpa's deal is though no we, we don't but it, but just it, it does feel you know again with the lived-in home of theirs, it does feel like this has been the situation for a, a bit. Uh, but this has not been a recent situation, though. I guess the hitchhiker this his uh, has been bouncing in and out, uh, you know from different jobs, I suppose. Though, though, uh, the anyway. But to, to answer your question, I mean, I, I do want to go back to what Katie was saying. I think about the '60s turning into the, the, the '70s and how I th- I feel like that first scene with the, the hitchhiker demonstrates that because i because i think of that that sort of hippie impulse you know when you're with your friends in a van and there's somebody somebody's putting their thumb out on the side of the road is to pick up pick that person up you know and and uh and everyone's going to be chill and it's going to be fine and you know you you know you're going to take pity on this person and and uh, maybe make a connection and then off they go and and it's a it's a complicated scene it's a longer scene because they're they are trying to connect with this guy or, or, or be comfortable with what with you know somebody who seems uh, you know at a minimum you know pretty darn strange uh, uh, and then gets more disturbed as it goes on but i think there is something to katie's point about it being kind of a different feeling and having that feeling connected with you know a changing of mood um that is has to do with the era
3: so, Vietnam, like we said, is not referenced directly in this at all. But when we first do see the hitchhiker, he's wearing like an army green t shirt. He's wearing what mm. looks like an army t shirt. Uh, one of the things I find really fascinating about this film is you can assign complete like auteur Kubrick level intentionality to all the choices in the film or none of the choices in the
2: film. So, <laughs> I think uh-huh. it's so interesting about this movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, it's incredibly sophisticated, but also feels like outsider art. (laughs) And uh, yeah, which is, again, I mean, beyond rare for a movie like that to exist. It's usually one thing or the other, but it's both.
3: (laughs) And talking about values, when you look at this movie through the very Texan value of protecting your homestead, the Sawyers are just protecting their land. I thought so, too. Invaders Mm -hmm. that are coming in and trying to disrupt their way of life.
2: Yes, I I was like, I was literally thinking, like, how would this hold up under the stand your ground? (laughs) Well, really they're,
4: they're, like, their way of life is clearly killing and eating people though
2: it, it, true but but i mean just if you look at this the basic facts and this is a courtroom we can't bring any of that outside outside previous cannibalism stuff if you are just looking <laughs> at if you're just Dismissed looking at people just walking just walking into the house you know and uh the giant you know uh is as large as this gentleman is with the hammer he probably feels threatened by the uh by this in, in home invader, and he has a, every justification to uh, turn to the to violence. I think it would be he'd have a better case if he had a gun, though. Would, a hammer is another story. Gun, gun, gun would be off the hook. I don't know. This does not play, take place in Florida. That's true. I think, but you know, it's somewhat analogous. It is Texas. I was curi- curious about the about too, if this film is about the fear of, uh, or plays to that fear of, you know, going to a place like <laughs> this area. This, like, uh, of, you know, uh, like, uh, usually those are urban fears. These are not necessarily tagged as urban characters. In fact, they have characters who are retry- returning to their home or a homestead or, w- w- where, you know, they're, they're from from the area. But there is a, still that same quality of just like, okay, you're now stepping on, onto art, Terrain and and um, you know that, that's a, that's a dynamic that I think the new one I which I will not see but I think the new one plays that more explicitly of just like you're a city person you're not from here you're kind of encroaching on this territory. When you say explicitly, do
0: you mean in every single line of dialogue in the film? Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: i have not seen the the bulgarian chainsaw massacre
4: (laughs) i will say of all of the things that happen in this film one of the most implausible ones to me is the idea that the two of these young people who appear to be there in their 20s, like one of them grew up in this house that looks a thousand years old. Like yeah. she, she stands in a, a room that looks like it burned down and then like grew mushrooms over every surface of it. And then those mushrooms burned down and then it grew black mold. And she's pointing out the, the duckies on the wallpaper and saying, Oh, these, these little animals used to sing me to sleep at night. And I'm like, what state was this room in that you were sleeping in this ten years ago? Apparently, maybe maybe twelve or thirteen at the outside. I I just find it really hard to reconcile that wreck of a house with somebody who's who's talking about her childhood there.
0: Yeah, I'd never considered that before. Now and now. That's all I think about when I think about this movie. Thanks, teenagers, Sasha. Teenagers, uh, are te- <laughs> te- teenagers are messy.
4: Teenagers are messy. They leave their black mold all
2: over the yeah. walls. Oh, they do. I don't know. It's in
3: disarray. I mean, not that it makes a difference in terms of the timeline, but I thought it was like their their grandparents' house or something like that. Like they didn't live there. Mm. It was just a place Oh, sure. It went.
4: Yeah I, yeah, I definitely get the impression that that she stayed there on an occasion, but. She definitely stayed in that room because she she talks about it and and the wallpaper and again, looking at it uh, through the warm lens of nostalgia as if she wasn't looking at something that's like rotting off the
3: walls right in front of her. Well, sometimes people do look at rotten things through the lens of nostalgia, Tasha. <laughs> I mean yeah. You know, you talk about like the the, the clash of generations and the old the, the last gasps of the dying old world, you know. You can you can look at this movie that way as like, you know, Leatherface's family and By extension, rural Texas is, you know, this old world that is being invaded by these new by these kids with their crazy new ideas. And this is kind of their their last attempt to kill them all and turn them into sausage.
4: Okay, now we're definitely putting Kubrickian uh, intentionality on (laughs) on ducky, a rotting ducky wallpaper. I just I want to I want to definitely loop back to the fact that what you're talking about is the symbolism of rotting ducky
0: wallpaper. I found myself this time struck by the similarity to another cultural product of this era in which a bunch of kids drove around aimlessly in a van uh, called Scooby-Doo, which is kind of like, (laughs) in some ways, a really dark episode of Scooby-Doo, but I don't know. On that, I'm not sure there's anything to develop on that point, so why don't we just take a quick break, and we'll be right back after that. Welcome back. I, I here's just sort of a personal observation about this film. I have seen it you know, quite a few times over over the years. I had not seen it in a while before watching it this time, and I think I found it both more technically impressive. And more shocking than 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 I, than I saw it before. It's kind of like you know, I know Pink Flamingos* is coming out on, on Blu-ray, and, and and that's a movie <laughs> I've, I I love, but I I don't, I don't even know if I can watch it anymore. And um, this one I definitely can watch, but but it is it's a it's a tougher sit than I remember, and it, it and it's tougher in some ways than than more explicit horror films. Did anyone else have that, have that experience watching it this time? Y- yes. I mean,
4: <clears throat> yeah. But one of the big reasons for that is just the difference of like watching a really good transfer versus the uh, the last time I saw it was almost certainly on VHS. Mm. I remember this movie as being a lot like grainier and, and crappier looking. And like watching some of the sequences, I was like, oh, this is so sharp. The colors are so rich. And then I realized that that's because I was introduced to it on a a fairly faulty medium. And I I just assumed that the look I was seeing was the look that he'd given the film as opposed to the look the VHS transfer gave the film. So it's possible that part of what you're experiencing is just you, you keep experiencing like better and better transfers, better and better renditions of the original film.
0: Yeah, the the recent Blu-ray, which is how I watched it, uh, is is pretty stunning looking. Uh, it was I'd never seen, of course, I kind of naturally never seen it look that good before, but it w- it really did look good. And and the only version available when I bought it was a SteelBook version, so I can pass this on as a, a precious heirloom to my daughter <laughs> and then to her children if she has any, and so on
2: did the blu-ray restore the french plantation sequence is my i uh, oh, sorry um uh, yeah. anyway that was a, that was a really stupid joke so i watched i watched this movie last night uh sat down on the couch and i, and I put in uh airpods because you know I, I yeah i've got a family here and everyone's up and here's all of this noise and okay and i had two basic reactions uh to it w- which was uh but one i got right up to the point where the first killing was about to happen. And I was like, I can't watch this anymore. <laughs> I'm done. I'm too freaked out. I'm not going to be, this is going to actually disturb my dreams. I'm going to pick up on the, pick this up tomorrow. The other thing I it was just watching it with headphones on really got me, gave me an appreciation for how busy and how sophisticated the soundtrack is. The, the music, the sound effects it's just very active and dynamic and i mean you know if you talk about intentionality it's it's right there i mean that's just th- that and that was the overall impression too of just being you know more that much more keenly aware of the filmmaking the superior filmmaking at work because the film can fool you by its brutality by the fact that it is such a visceral visceral experience that you have to watch it again to, to really understand why it works on you to the extent that it does and why it's like a real honest-to-goodness, you know, masterpiece of cinema. Um, and, and that has to do with um, with so many different elements, in sound being a big, important uh, one of them.
3: Yeah, the sound in this movie is so well done. And um, one of my favorite little facts about the film is um, the sound you hear at the very beginning with the flashbulb doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a regular camera yeah thing. yeah yeah the, the sound mixer refuses to say how it was done will not say mm-hmm. we'll take it to really a
2: i feel like i've heard people try to rip that sound off too. The remake
0: right? the the 2000 whatever remake ripped it off in the trailer and, and i think in the film itself too Ooh, man
3: yeah he Ugh. refuses to reveal how he did it but um so am <laughs> i the only person who watches horror movies as like exposure therapy for generalized anxiety disorder is
0: that true <laughs> <laughs> I uh, like, I usually see. find wow. horror films, particularly like sort of the, you know, the mainstream Hollywood horror films. That's that's like comfort film. I, you know, if I'm up in yeah. the middle of the night and can't sleep, that's fine. You know, I just fine. I just assumed it like was is- a
2: sicko. That was what I. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't think there was anything more to it than that.
3: I could just be rationalizing being a sicko.
2: Okay, good.
3: <laughs> but there's something about like um this film. Has you know, it does maintain a very you know, I'm using really technical terms here, like vibes, but <laughs> it's it's got it it it's, it's got this elevated level of anxiety all throughout the film, and something that I found I've probably seen this movie a dozen times, it vibrates on a similar frequency to my general state of always being a little bit anxious and keyed up. And so there's something I find weirdly comforting about the the exact level of anxiety in this movie. I'm like, oh, yes, I recognize that. I feel that when I go out to a cocktail party. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, it, it, like you're in a chair screaming <laughs> while people are taunting you. I <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I more as the film, the film as a Got whole. It. There's something about the exact level of because there are films that are have more running around and screaming than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not the most running around screaming horror film ever made. I wouldn't think there's some that, that go harder than this one. And there are some that are a slower burn. There's something about the exact level of this. Movie, I think it, it's tuned just right. For the amount that it makes you feel uncomfortable while you're watching
4: it. I just, I find that incredible because like my one, ah, I don't know if critique of this movie is uh, appropriate because it definitely, this definitely is not a universal thing. For me personally, it, there was, there was a point where it became too much you know, the, the screaming just goes on and on and on, like well past the point where I feel like I, in that situation would be able to maintain either the voice to scream or the will to do it with.
3: Oh, truly. Marilyn Burns is just the amount of time because, you know, I referenced this earlier, but you know, when I was reading Gunnar Hansen's book, they would shoot, you know, running and screaming for, 12 16 18 hours at a stretch i don't know how she kept up her stamina that long just to do that for that long
4: she was she a swimmer like these uh, advanced lung capacity like part uh, like a, a professional pearl diver before all this started mm-hmm. there comes a point around the time of uh like late in the dinner where Ho- oh, toby hooper's just like pushing close, close, close in on her eyeballs as like they're rolling in terror. And she's been screaming at this point nonstop for what feels like 10 minutes. And she's going to go on to scream nonstop for uh, a rather longer time. And it gets past the point where I personally feel like she should be in shock. I feel like I'm in shock just trying to experience what she's experiencing and the relentlessness of it. I guess is effective, but it's also just so draining for me. Like it's there's nothing cathartic in any of it. There's nothing relieving about anything uh, that happens in the movie. There's just, to some degree, almost like, oh God, will you please just
0: kill her and put her out of her misery? Like, when will this be over? So I want to talk about that and the running around and screaming and such. The last, say, third of this film, maybe more, is given over to horrible things happening to Sally. Mentally, physically, she's in danger. She's tied up. She's being taunted. It is a depiction of misogyny that, that doesn't feel like an example of misogyny to me. Unlike you know other horror films that that do, and I'm not quite sure why. It may maybe just that she does escape, or you know we are so kind of lockstep with her. I mean, she's our point of identification. There's no like later Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on the Street movies where you're kind of. Rooting for the killer with this, you were rooting for Sally. I, I don't, maybe that's it. I don't know. Maybe what was what, what somebody else's thought on that?
4: My big thought here is that one of the reasons it doesn't feel as squirmy to me as a lot of other movies in this vein would is i just don't feel like she's being sexualized you know mm. she's she's getting progressively more like bloodied and battered and stringy haired and and matted as the the movie and her ordeal go on but she doesn't start like losing her clothing <laughs> And even when like these these four men have captured her, and one of them's sucking on her finger, or like she's tied to a chair, and like leatherface is is feeling her, it's disturbing, but at the same time, the whole thing doesn't end up feeling like a rape metaphor for me, and the fact that I was never particularly worried about these men raping her. I was never particularly worried about the the male gaze in these scenes being all about. Like how subversively exciting it is to to have this woman tied up and helpless for their titillation, they treat her like literal meat. They're much more interested in like breaking her for amusement and eating her than they are molesting her. And I think I think you can just feel it.
0: I don't eat meat right now um, and have not for a while, but I've never... What I did, I never really taunted my meat, though. (laughs) Is this (laughs) something that happens at your house, Tasha? But they're taunting her. I, I just think it's so explicitly clear that
4: they're taunting her because they have the power of life and death over her and not because they're sexualizing her. I feel like the scene with her and and Jim Side out in the truck when she's in the bag tied up and he's poking her is about the closest we get both to sexualization and to that specific kind of discomfort. And I feel like that scene is just so key because he's sort of trying to comfort her. And at the same time, he's tormenting her. And it just really plays in the character that he's kind of like playing out a bunch of very contradictory impulses that he himself doesn't know how to align. And there's a lot of madness in this film, like like literal mental illness. But that particular form and expression of it, I think, is honestly to me more disturbing than Leatherface hitting people over the head. Because the mixture of trying to see her as a person and seeing her as a, a toy, you know, seeing her as a, a mouse in the mouth of a cat is so evident in his performance. And it's it's horrible, but it's mesmerizing.
3: Yeah, the violence isn't sexualized in the same way that it is in, um, say, like a a Friday the 13th movie. I think out of all the big franchises, Friday the 13th sexualizes the violence the most. And uh, there's a couple there's one thing that's missing from Texas Chainsaw that is in Friday the 13th is in those movies. The kids are going to the cabin specifically to party and have sex and then they're punished by being killed but here they're going to check and see if their grandparents graves have been desecrated <laughs> there's no slut shaming punishment element they're not being punished for their actions they were just unlucky to be there and i think that that takes some of the sexualization out of it
2: But this, this is this is not a film that's free of sexualization though i either it just is kind of ends at a certain point right i mean you have some pretty one of the more famous low low shots of the film is 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 as gazy as it gets but uh but i'm not really sure everybody's
3: ripped that off the the camera's going down low and you can see the the short shorts yeah
2: yeah yeah
4: there's a fair bit of that in uh another movie that we're going to discuss shortly as well but yeah it's it's a really common thing
2: for sure but 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 i'm not sure what to make of it i mean in terms of like what what happens later in the film and and whether that figures in at all all, or whether that was some you know kind of bit of drive-in level titillation or what
4: i think it's significant that the, the, the like those low shots the, 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 the leering, like, let's, let's look up her ass and just kind of like have the camera caress the back of her, her thighs. All of that is separated from the point of the movie where the violence starts. You know, once again, you take a woman and you drive a hook through her back and hang her up like meat and then shove her in your freezer. Like there is certainly a level of like sexual symbolism to a bunch of that, but I just don't think the movie foregrounds it. And I, I don't feel like a leering quality to these things. And I think that that really does contribute to the horror is just the feeling that these people don't see their victims as people, their toys, and then their meat.
3: Yeah. And like once that metal door slams, I feel like we almost leave the world that we come from and go into a completely different world mm-hmm. where Leatherface and his family live and it operates by completely different logic obviously because they kill people and make sausages out of them.
4: Yeah, when i think about the the elements of horror movies, one of the the key ones being isolation, this is the movie i always come back to in my mind is you you just can't feel more isolated. Like they they would feel less isolated on the moon than they feel in that house you know with no phone no cell phone nobody knows where they are there's no way to to run somewhere because everything's so spread out because it's texas like their isolation is is perfect and complete and it's just really part of the weight of the horror
0: here so this is an unusual horror film it gets lumped in with slasher films which it sort of anticipates and kind of has some common qualities with but it is you know, it's unusual in that it has a family of killers. Later in the film, we see them together and they have their own kind of history and conflicts that are kind of hinted at as well. What, what's gained by that? And like, what, what do you think about the depiction of the Texas Chainsaw family as, as, as a family?
3: I think having the family in it makes it like kind of more disturbing and more twisted because it, you know, it's, it shows that they have a system. They have thought this through. Everybody has their role. It's not, you know, um, they didn't just snap and start doing this one day. This is a deliberate, you know, family structure that they've set up. And just the perversion of that is really disturbing. I think it's one of the more disturbing things about the movie.
2: I think another thing potentially to note here is that um, this is a family of men. I mean, this family has no future. Uh, Right. I mean, this is like completely they're not building towards anything. Nothing is being constructed. This is just, you know, this is, you know, a dead, dying family in a dead, dying part of the of the country.
4: I think there's just also a lot of potential here once we get to the dinner party in particular to see how different people like justify and, and process atrocity you know leatherface is voiceless like whatever it is that's going on in his head uh he murders people but he seems childlike and and defensive about the house and defensive about his space and defensive around the other members of the family in terms of like what he's done and why but you have uh the hitchhiker is kind of off in his own world that he's constructed out of like grievances and and anger and excitement and thrills and sadism there's a whole lot of different stuff all like all balled up in just a big sack of crazy and then you have uh he's he's just credited as old man jim side out maybe my favorite part of this movie the moment at the table where he kind of pushes back and is like "Ah, i got no taste for killing and it comes out that he considers himself better than the other two because, you know, he only entraps people, ties them up and brings them to the house to be murdered and eaten, but doesn't do the killing himself. I just think that says so much about the justifications that people give themselves for the things that they do and the reasons that, that people take to assume that they're superior to other people.
3: You know he's also anything be normal if
4: he's you're also a little enough. a little smarter than these two people, uh and therefore considers himself a genius, you know, everything's relative.
0: There is a feminine figure in a way, in the sense that leatherface has makeup on it, has has long flowing hair. That's a curious feature. I'm not sure what to make of it.
2: felt like it felt like it was a, a part of the psycho homage part of mm, the film, sure, yeah. This film, this is the X of its day. This was referencing Psycho.
3: The fourth one, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4, they take that much farther. And Leatherface, you know, has a full face of makeup, has a wig on, has breasts, puts on perfume, the whole thing.
0: So we should talk about the fact this is not a a standalone film it was probably never intended to spawn a bunch of sequels but i i found a wikipedia page that has you know charts for like three different continuities for three different branches of the texas Chain stuff <laughs> Ah, oh, Lord. Um, I, all right, I, we don't want to dwell on it too much because there's a lot of them we, c- we couldn't get into it. But are any you know are any sequels worthwhile? I, I've seen some. Two. I have some opinions about what I've seen. Yeah, too. I, I think two an interesting movie. Yes, it's been a long time since I've seen that. It. Yeah, and it's a
2: complete pivot and it's a totally different thing. And, and it's also uh, directed by Toby Hooper. Right. No, I, I mean I, I'm not I'm not wholly unannoyed by this, by the second film, but but I I do think it's it, it earns more more than, many points for being as kind of strange and audacious and unexpected as it is um, he it, it was didn't just...
3: really want to do it he didn't really want to do a second movie and there's, so uh, I compare Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 to Gremlins 2 a lot because it's <laughs> <of> the director <laughs> taking this thing that they created that became this huge phenomenon and going, fine fine, you want a sequel okay <laughs> here you go then, can
2: I do whatever I want please <laughs> yeah, okay, great <laughs>
3: look as long
4: as it's set in texas and it's got a chainsaw massacre of some kind in it yes yes you can
2: can i torture gizmo yes <laughs>
3: um i wrote a uh, run the series article about the texas chainsaw massacre for av club so i've seen every single texas oh Chainsaw God. movie mm. most of them are just not worth the time i would say two and four because two is toby hooper taking the thing that he made and putting all of his ambivalence toward it into a sequel. And then four is Kim Henkel, who was the producer and co writer of the film doing the same thing. Mm. And that, and that one, that one barely came out. It was, uh, it's very satirical. Um, It's, it draws in a lot of conspiracy theory stuff. It came out around the time the X-Files debuted and it's got a lot of similar, you know, kind of like, Paranoid um, '90s conspiracy theory kind of energy to it, and like I said, it takes the subtext with Leatherface and makes it text, where Leatherface, you know, wears women's skin and uh, all this kind of stuff. And young Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger. Oh right,
2: I like that film. I, I was like wondering, is that the one? Is that the one with Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger? I, yeah, I thought that had a lot of merit to it. Yeah,
3: it's, it has all the hard copy jokes in it and stuff like.
2: That. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's all. It's about the '90s, the same way the original is about
0: the '70s. I would say. Hmm. Interesting. I'll check that one. Out. I, I've seen the the Platinum Dunes ones and, and hate them both, <laughs> especially the second one.
3: The um, first one is like passable.
0: <laughs> the <fine>. second one <laughs> is is like really like the worst elements. Like, oh, everyone's doing torture porn. Let's make a Texas Chainsaw torture porn movie, and and it is it is just gross. So it is it is kind of everything, you know that that we we or praising this one for being, it is not.
4: I find this all really fascinating as someone who hasn't seen any of the sequels, has just never, never tried to seek them out because none of them have the reputation that this one has as, uh, you know, being a just required viewing for for film critics. But I recently commissioned a super fan of the series to write a piece for Polygon. And what he came in with, I know I, I talk on this podcast a lot about, oh, there's this Polygon article you should read. That's because every every article that I personally edit is like a baby for me, like a personal baby that I escort out to the world and then want everybody to find. He wrote about how his thesis was that every one of these sequels is an attempt to pull one element out of the first movie in, in the assumption that that was the element that made it work. He did another headline, uh, Every t- Chainsaw Massacre sequel psychoanalyzes the original. So it kind of seems to me like th- the idea is like maybe if there's one specific thing you like about the the first movie, there's definitely a, a sequel that's for you specifically. And he he does actually run down the list of what he thinks is worth watching. And he, he came in with yeses on way more of them than than you guys did, so hmm. like he definitely has much more of a taste for te- Texas Chainsaw so, than uh, yeah. Anybody here. I mean, I think
2: I think broadly speaking, I mean the best you can do is be an apologist for some of these films. <laughs> but, you know, you're not necessarily none of them. You really feel like a, a special enthusiasm about or or, or feel are f- without pretty significant flaws, and then and then the vast majority of them are just bad. I mean, I don't know.
3: Do I you like the first Platinum Dunes remake, all right. I think that's mm-hmm. five.
2: What's the worst? What's 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 at the bottom?
3: Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Beginning, which I think is seven. That one has, you know, we were talking about how the original has brutality but no gore, you know, tension but no blood. That one's all blood and gore and no tension or brutality or effect okay. or anything.
0: And very and very leering too. Very, I think that's a lot of yeah.
3: Yes.
4: Yes. It also sounds like a ton of these movies. Decide that the, the thing that nobody likes about the original is that, like, Leatherface is this, uh, mystery. Like, nobody likes any shades of mystery or, or nuance or, uh, opacity in their horror films. What they want is a, an immense amount of detail about his backstory and his uh, psychoanalysis. So it seems like a lot of these movies, like, get heavily into the Leatherface lore. I don't understand anybody who lives in a world where knowing a whole lot more about a mysterious, terrifying horror movie element makes it better or more interesting.
3: That's just fanboy stuff. They tried to do that with Michael Myers, too. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, all the Celtic lore stuff? That stuff's great. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That's what you want. The new one, yeah, the new one completely loses everything, you know, that made the franchise interesting or special or different. It really felt like an unrelated script that they slapped the name Texas Chainsaw mm. on. Um, Leatherface is fully a, you know, supernatural being <laughs> in oh, that man. Uh, Yeah, I really, really disliked the new one because it really wasn't uh, I'll have to read that Polygon article and and see. Did that come out before the new one?
4: Yeah, it came out in conjunction with the new one. Is there is there somewhere in the series? Uh, and I think this is a question for you, Katie. Is there an equivalent of Jason X? Like, is there a a film that just kind of says, yeah, yeah, fuck it. You you guys will be happy if you have a t- a, t- a chainsaw and a massacre. Like, let's go full on silly with this. Uh, or
2: okay, <laughs> I was saying
4: yeah, the, the yeah.
3: beginning. Yeah, the one with the. Uh, Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger, we were just talking about. I think that one, that's the one where it just goes full tail nutty. I admit having
4: just seen pictures uh, of of McConaughey in that movie, putting together this article. I saw a lot of McConaughey in this movie pictures, and I, I want to see it just for that aspect of it.
2: I mean, it was, it was not available for a really, really long time, oh, right?
3: Yes. It came out in theaters. I don't think it got a national release. I think yeah. it, it had a premiere and then maybe played in a few theaters in Texas, and then it just wasn't around until Blu-ray. It just wasn't available.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's why I was surprised by like, hey, wait a minute, this is actually pretty interesting.
4: <laughs> well, apparently now it's on uh, HBO Max. Really?
1: Wow.
3: There' wow. a lot of '90s stuff in there. A lot of very '90s cultural uh, threads
0: in that film. <laughs> uh, on that note, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll wind down like a chainsaw that's like slowly returning to not spinning, we're going to wind this discussion down, but we're going to rev it back up uh, with our next episode where we pair it <laughs> with X. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on this, this discussion, You know, possibly whether or not it'd be better to dry, die by a hammer or bolt gun, which we didn't really get into, but yeah, there's, everyone's got an opinion on that, I'm sure. And anything else in the world of film, email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners. We'll be right back in a minute with a preview of our next episode. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll compare the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with X, which is sort of a Texas Chainsaw-free massacre. That film is currently playing in theaters. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, including letters from other listeners, find us on Patreon at patreon.com/slash-next-picture-show. We're eager to answer your feedback on Feedback Friday, where we've recently talked about the ambiguities of the power of the dog and given advice on a career in film criticism. We're also at at show.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next episode. Think carefully before digging into that roadside barbecue.
1: I'll
0: eat you up.